Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 23rd of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The 28 leaders of the countries in the European Union are to meet on Sunday for an extraordinary council summit when it's hoped each will approve the withdrawal agreement allowing the UK to leave the EU and also to make a political declaration agreeing in principle on the future relationship the remaining 27 countries will have with the UK after the divorce. This will conclude the most complicated part of the process in many respects but if successful, each European country will have to put the deal to a vote in their national parliaments. Brexit must also be signed off by the European Parliament. Maid McGuinness is the Vice President of the European Parliament and a Fine Gael MEP and joins us now and good morning to you and thank you indeed for your time with us today. What do you expect to happen this weekend? Good morning, Michael. Well, I expect um, that this withdrawal agreement and political declaration will get uh, the support of the leaders because I think the, the view is they wouldn't meet unless everything was resolved. And I know there are some last minute uh, issues that are still perhaps open, the Spanish question, for example. But that is my expectation that this weekend we will see um, closure from an EU perspective on this uh, draft withdrawal agreement and on the political declaration. And, of course, you've outlined some uh, of the steps that will take place after that. But that's the view that should emerge this weekend. And do you expect that uh, as part of the withdrawal agreement that Gibraltar will leave the European Union along with the rest of the United Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, the the withdrawal agreement on the Spanish issue is between Spain and the United Kingdom, and the the Spanish Prime Minister has made some comments about that. So what's very clear is what is written in the draft withdrawal agreement is not to be reopened on Sunday and uh, changed in any respect. There may well have to be some declaration by the leaders around the Gibraltar issue. Um, I haven't had an update this morning uh, from Brussels as to what is happening on that, but clearly there is still a concern. I think there are domestic uh, issues in Spain around this, um, and they're unresolved. But in terms of what will happen Sunday, it is not a day that will be for negotiation. It is a day for sign-off. And I think that some uh, leaders, including the German Chancellor, has indicated that they wouldn't travel Mm. Uh, to uh, Brussels if it was about negotiations because they're leaving that to those who are involved in the detail. 
Uh, is it that uh, the leaders will sign off on uh, the deal on Sunday, but the Spanish will leave themselves with the option of rejecting it in the Spanish Parliament? Well, you see, the uh, um, just to be clear on the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration, that, that doesn't have to be unanimous by the 27, but mm. I think there is a view that it should be because there's a great unity of the 27 to this point. So I think that there will be a lot of work done to make sure that there is unanimous support for what's on the table. That doesn't have to go to national parliament. What has to go to national parliament is what comes after the United Kingdom leaves and when there is an actual trade agreement or deal uh, on the table, fully negotiated. So that's some time down the road. That's the future relationship future agreement. Relationship. So the only parliaments who will vote on the withdrawal agreement and political declaration this entirety is the, um, the heads of state give their approval, the House of Commons clearly, which will mm. be interesting to see what they do, and the European Parliament. Because remember, this is only the divorce settlement. Uh, it is not the detail of how we're going to divide up the assets of the children, if I may use the, the, mm. the same parallel. That comes after March. Although I have to say the political declaration is, is a long declaration. I mean, there's 147 points and paragraphs in it so it's not a a flimsy document it does Mm. deal in some detail with issues but the flesh will have to be put on the bones of that after March and if we can reach a conclusion on these talks about the future um, within the time frame up to the end of 2020 then at that point, national parliaments will have to look at what's on the table. Well, it's been described as aspirational, uh, flimsy, if you like. It is a 26-page document uh, which pales into comparison to the almost 600-page withdrawal agreement uh, document. Uh, And I guess the reason for that is, as you've just outlined, this is what's being agreed in principle. The actual uh, terms of the future relationship have still to be negotiated. Absolutely. And, um, you know, to some extent, you made the remark that, you know, we've gotten over this difficult step thus far. But actually, I think we're going to have difficult steps uh, for some time to come. I mean, the first issue we have to see resolved is how the House of Commons votes on this. I think the European Parliament, you know, if the House of Commons is supportive for it, I think we will also look at it positively. We have to go through it forensically in the Constitutional Affairs Committee. But I think that um, the, the real issues will come when this political declaration is translated into a trade agreement because in the document, and I've, I've read it um, carefully, it sets out uh, issues that both sides want resolved, but it clearly also sets out issues where there are difficulties mm. in coming to a resolution. So the trade talks will be you know, difficult as all trade negotiations are, because to some extent what we're trying to do is point out that uh, somebody who's leaving the European Union will be a third country and therefore can't have the same benefits as a member. But equally, we're, we're, we know that the UK is a close partner. And how do we draft an agreement that recognises that reality alongside the reality of the UK wanting to be a third country? Okay. So you're quite right in saying it's not going to be easy at all. And the Irish border, the backstop, or as to whether all of that can be overcome with technology, part of the aspiration. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, the British, as we've been hearing this morning, asking the Irish uh, to find solutions on developing the technology that would allow for a seamless border. Well, it's very clear the backstop is there. It is the insurance policy. If when we come to discuss the details of a trade agreement, we fail to uh, solve uh, this very difficult conundrum about no hard border on the island of Ireland, because Northern Ireland will leave 
as part of the United Kingdom at the end of March. So I think all of those aspirational issues that are in the political declaration are there for, for to give people something to focus on. But the essential point from an Irish perspective and the European Union perspective is that there will be no hard border because we do have the insurance policy of the backstop. Mm. I think it's also important to say that in the political declaration, and I welcome this, there is reference to funding for peace programmes in Northern Ireland uh, into the future. So I think there are, there's a lot of good things in this political declaration which both sides, I guess the British Prime Minister and the EU, have uh, come to an agreement on. I mean, I've listened to the debate subsequently in uh, the UK, in the House of Commons, and clearly there's a lot of disagreement there and that even people on either side of this remain or, or uh, leave argument are perhaps coming together to oppose what's on the table. So I think our focus is to see what will emerge from this meaningful vote in the House of Commons, which will take place, as I understand it, mm. in early December. Right. Uh, and of course, Brexit uh, was uh, discussed widely at uh, the Fine Gael National Conference uh, last weekend. Uh, as you'd expect, uh, and as you'd expect, national conferences, whether it's Fine Gael or any other conferences, is a, a time for rhetoric. I think there were some eyebrows raised at how uh, Leo Vratker was putting it up to Michal Martin and some of the things that were said at what some people would consider to be a sensitive time in the negotiations on the confidence and supply agreement. But that's the nature of national conferences. Are you concerned that the DUP are holding their national conference tomorrow and how the timing of that may impact on the development of uh, the uh, deal uh, and indeed uh, the DUP's relationship with Mrs May? Well, I think we know where the DUP are on this issue. Um, I think what's much more important in all of this... Yeah, but tomorrow's a time for them to shout it from the rooftops, isn't it? Yeah, but, you know, parties have their party conferences Mm. and I think people, you know, you, you, you can listen and then you have to reflect. And what's very important in this debate is that the British Prime Minister is meeting businesses, communities, people mm. who will be impacted if this goes off the Fair road. enough, but are you trying to tell me the DUP won't be saying tomorrow that they'll never surrender? I'm not trying to say anything about mm. what the DUP will say because I don't speak for them. I speak for um, as Vice President of the European Parliament and a mm. member of the Fianna Gael Party. But I am saying very clearly, if you listen to what the Ulster Farmers Union are saying, mm. If you listen to business in Northern Absolutely. Ireland... Absolutely, and I put those points to Jim Wells the other day on the programme. It's very, very clear that the DUP are not acting on behalf of their constituencies, but it would seem that their principles, their political principle of an undivided union is more important than anything else to that p- political party. Well, again, you know, that's for them to speak to. I think what we're, uh, from a European Union perspective and an Irish perspective, is that we have uh, reached a very important uh, part of the process where the British Prime Minister has lived up to her commitment on no hard border on the island of Ireland. That has given rise to difficult politics, not just from mm. the DUP. Uh, I have to say the Prime Minister, uh, Theresa May, seems to get stronger with the increased resistance she comes under politically, and she will need to be very strong. There's even speculation that the numbers at the moment for a first vote don't look like they go in her favour, but that there may be another round of voting. Uh, I don't know how the procedures work in the House of Commons, but at the end of the day, we're coming to Christmas. Mm. Uh, We're coming to the end of March. 
Um, there are options which face uh, um, elected representatives on a number of occasions that are difficult mm. choices to make. And I think what will be spelled out by the British Prime Minister to the colleagues in the House of Commons are the options before them and the consequences of different voting patterns. And really, we're almost removed from that debate because that is up to their um, elected... Do you believe that they will capitulate because there's a gun put to their head? I wouldn't use that language at all. Um, I think that... But that's the tactic that's being adopted, isn't it? By whom? By Mrs May. It's a, a take it or leave it. It's take this terrible deal that we all agree is terrible or face into this doomsday Armageddon scenario. That's the... Um, well, first of all, I disagree with your language around what this deal is. I mean, the British Prime Minister, um, while I disagreed with her in many respects about the lengths it has taken, she has lived up to her commitments that she entered into last December. Mm. Uh, we have an agreement that the European Union and the United Kingdom are prepared to sign up to. Uh, the difficulty is in the United Kingdom that the forces opposed to leaving, so those who want to remain in mm. Europe and those who want to leave yesterday, may unite against the deal for different reasons. Well, Boris Johnson will be telling the DUP tomorrow that it, it, it uh, makes it a, a vassal state. Well, I, I really don't comment on what Boris Johnson says because uh, he's not... Um, but that's in, the, that's in, the terrible deal argument. ...in the United Kingdom, and he's been, uh, you know, from the get-go against virtually everything. Um, there are lots of people in the United Kingdom who have opinions, but they walked mm. away from the table when, when this issue was being shaped. How, how they, can, have a, they have a right to comment. How can she win the Commons vote? vote? Without Boris Johnson and the other uh, Brexiteers uh, and the DUP, uh, how can she win the Commons vote? I'm sure that she and her advisers are pondering that, but that's again an issue for the uh, British uh, system to decide uh, they have to respect the vote of, of the people of the United Kingdom who voted to leave. They knew that there would be a withdrawal agreement and a draft political declaration. Mm. They now have a meaningful vote on. And it comes down to their choice. I'm not engaged in their debate because I'm not in the House of Commons. I will not have a vote, but it, we certainly will be impacted by the consequences of that vote. And I suppose what we're all trying to do is you know, maybe look at mm. the first step in this, which, you know, this weekend is significant. It's then all eyes will be on what comes out of the yeah. House of Commons. But re- realistically, I mean, if the Commons votes this down in the middle of December uh, and the political system isn't back up and working until the middle of January, you're talking about a, a couple of months in reality to prepare for the United Kingdom crashing out. Uh, well, there is speculation, and again, I don't know procedurally in the House of Commons how this would work, but of a second vote. So, for example... If that shortens the scenario, time again. If your scenario was correct and it doesn't go through on a first vote, I would have thought this will not be left over Christmas. I think that there will be a process before Christmas, because remember, it's not just the House of Commons. The European Parliament has to mm. look at this and ratify it as well. Um, but don't uh, forget that even though we're at this stage where we see hope that at this weekend we get mm. to a, a, an agreement, that uh, plans for a no deal are, are still underway at EU level. So it's not as if people are saying, well, that's a relief, we're all OK. I think mm. there is, of course, an awareness that at any point this could go wrong. But we're not working towards it going wrong. We're working towards getting a political agreement and getting politicians to understand that there are consequences 
uh, for the way they vote, particularly uh, those in the United Kingdom. But the debate is an internal one for them to resolve. But should the preparations that are in, be, uh, in place be expecting a, a situation where planes will be grounded in the United Kingdom or troops will be needed at petrol stations? Well, sh- should that be the case, I think it would really, uh, and this is where it becomes very real, that there are dire consequences of failure of, polit- of politics mm. to reach an agreement. And the people will, will impact it. And I dare say there would be a very strong reaction from the citizens in the United Kingdom and indeed across Europe mm. uh, in that doomsday scenario. Um, so I would have thought that it would behove all of us uh, to prepare for the worst, but also to work towards a better solution. I, I mean, I've always said, and I've said it on your programme, that this is about damage limitation because full membership of the United Kingdom and the European Union is, for us, the best way forward. That's not happening, not going to happen, unless there is enough, another referendum, which is another day. Could work. the doomsday Therefore, scenario... I'm sorry, I'm sorry to cut across you. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Michael. Uh, I'm sorry, I was just going to ask you, could the doomsday scenario uh, actually... Uh, be the best first step uh, in terms of achieving United Ireland? Now, I think that, and I've had this conversation with you before, and I think it is completely wrong to make a link between the Brexit discussions and the future status of Northern Ireland. It's not only is it unhelpful, it's unwise, and it also um, fails to, uh, if you like, mm. recognise that you... the future of Northern Ireland rests in the Good Friday Agreement mm. and the principle of consent. But the yes. constitutional position of Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom is a given... It's today. a very logical argument, though, is it? I mean, if people in Northern Ireland can't get petrol, they can't cross the border to go to work, uh, they've no electricity, uh, and indeed uh, violence er- erupts again, or some of these things uh, that are all possible, I-, I think it's generally agreed, not probable, but possible. But if any of them happened, uh, do you not think that people would say, is there an alternative, uh, and perhaps favour the idea of a, 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 a border poll, a, a vote on a United Ireland? Um, Michael, this is a possibility uh, of a border poll, regardless of your doomsday scenario, because I've just repeated that's in the Good Friday Agreement. So I think mm. speculating on a doomsday and a vote is just not helpful now. I mean, you mentioned, for example, the DUP are having their conference. So this conversation, uh, we need to temper our comments uh, to the reality of what's facing us here. And what's facing us is a need to have an orderly withdrawal of the United Kingdom and a close relationship thereafter. And all other speculation is unhelpful. And I think we need to be very conscious of that. Okay, well, it's uh, certainly a significant weekend ahead of us uh, and uh, just the next step in this never-ending process as it has been so far. But look, thank you indeed for joining us uh, in advance of uh, the Council Summit on Sunday. Mairead McGuinness is the Vice President of the European Parliament and Fine Gael MEP. Michael Reed on LMFM. Currently investigating an incident in Moneymore, Drogheda have charged three men. The three are to appear in court this morning. A fourth man who was arrested yesterday continues to be detained at Dundalk Garda Station and can be held for up to 72 hours. Richie Culhan, Fine Gael councillor and former Garda detective, joins us uh, this morning. Obviously, uh, we're limited in what we can say, given that there are charges uh, that have been preferred and people in front of court this morning, Richie, uh, but uh, I take it uh, that uh, the Garda investigations have intensified. 
Well, yes, Michael, good morning. And, uh, you know, I'm delighted that uh, they have intensified. And, uh, you know, uh, Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan was on your program a few days ago. And he said that the, he had put together and they were putting together a, a policing plan to deal with this particular issue and this uh, so-called feud that we're talking about. And I suppose we saw that come to fruition um, <clears throat> when these individuals were arrested. Um, so, I mean, if anyone has any illusions, you know, that these criminals wouldn't, would be allowed to engage in, in this activity without, you know, suffering the full rigours of the law, then, you know, that illusion is, has firmly, firmly been put to, to bed emphatically, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm delighted that these individuals have been arrested. I think that it will make people in the area feel a little safer and uh, it sends out a message also you know to the people that you know and of course there are certain politicians that uh, suggested that uh, you know that Gardaí were in collusion with uh, some of these individuals and that also puts to bed that whole idea and I think that you know people who make suggestions in relation to um, Gardaí being in collusion with uh, with criminals uh, should come forward and in fact they're obliged by law to come forward with that information uh, and I think that you know as I said people probably know who I'm referring to but I would say to that individual come forward with that information I'm delighted that this you know, you're happened. talking about Imelda Munster uh, uh, and Imelda Munster said that there was a perception that that was a case and that was a statement that I supported uh, because I've certainly been made aware of that perception have you not been made aware of that perception I think I, I spoke to you about that before and I thought uh, you said you had heard from people who had said the same thing no, no, I didn't, Mike. Mm, uh, what, okay. I, what I said was that if that perception was out there, then it should be firmly, uh, it should be firmly knocked on the head because um, there, while uh, you know there is a possibility, and of course you, you can't just not write it off. But what I'm saying is, if there is information mm. in the public domain that it was, that that's, that Imelda Munster has, she should come forward with that information, and it's her duty to come forward with that information, and so she can't withhold it. And if she knows of people that have information in relation to that she should come forward with that information because it's vitally important. That she should name people who have said that to her. That she should name people that have said that to her. She should encourage those people yeah, that that's have different. That yeah, to, so, her to come forward. Okay, yeah. So she 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 knows that if they come forward, they're in danger, uh, and she may have spoken to them about this. People she may, who come she forward may, don't necessarily have to be in danger. Michael. She may have spoken. Come, come she may have confidential spo- information to Angarda. Hold on, on at I, any stage, Richie. Uh, you know, you, you know that people will be afraid to come forward, whether yes. they're in danger or not. Yes. Uh, and Imelda Munster may have spoken to them about this. She may not have spoken to them about this. She's not here now uh, to respond to that. Uh, but uh, on the assumption that these people are afraid to come forward and she feels that they're genuine uh, and uh, that that is the perception that there has been uh, that uh, informant policy uh, by Angarda Shiakana here, uh, well then, what's the problem with her saying it? Uh, it's certainly a perception that I have had, and I have said it as well, uh, and it's not being plucked out of the sky because we know that it was said several years ago in RD uh, when millions of euro of heroin and cocaine were found under the floorboards of a, a warehouse and the complaint went to GSOC. Yeah, exactly, Michael, and that's why I said to you I'm not, I'm not uh, totally dismissing the fact that something right. like this might be going okay. on. What I'm suggesting right. is, okay. is that if somebody has information in relation to this, it's absolutely vitally important uh, for everybody's sake, including members of Angarda Shirkana, who I would have to suggest uh, would a public be the first pers- ones to root out. Uh, well, hold on uh, now. There, 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 is a, there is a public perception that that is the case, rightly or wrongly. 
that statement was made and that gave the Gardaí the opportunity to rebut that perception. And the Chief Superintendent did that and quite forcibly on the programme. Absolutely, and he did it with, with, with uh, authoritatively. And and but what I'm saying, I'm su- I'm suggesting is, if that perception is out there, and if I, as a politician, speak to somebody that has information in relation to, in relation to a crime, and and it, and it is a crime if if there are members of Ungarda Shikana colluding with criminals uh, for one reason or another. That is a criminal offence. And if people well, have information depends, in relation no, hold to on, that, no, hold on, they, should, hold they, on. Should, they should come forward with that uh, information. The, the Gardaí would often have moles, wouldn't they? Yes, but it's yeah, very, tra- very transparent. In paramilitary organisations and so on. Very transparent under the law, you know. Uh, but, I mean, certainly in my years in Angarda Shikana... <clears throat> Are you saying it's illegal for the Gardaí to take information about drug dealers from drug dealers? No, it has to be transparent, though, and it has to be widely accepted. I mean, the, 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 but if the, there's an the suggestion if, if there's was, an informant policy, and that is the policy, then it's not yeah. illegal. Mike, my, my opinion on this was the, the suggestion was that Gerdi are colluding with guys and that, throwing a blind eye to their criminality uh, um, um, as by, part by, of an informant by, policy. Yes, but you do not, regardless of you, you cannot under the law throw a blind eye to criminality. You can collude with criminals, but you cannot throw a blind eye if they're involved in any criminality. You must take them, them before the courts. That's absolutely 100%. But, perha- but perhaps uh, there isn't criminality. Perhaps uh, they're part of uh, a, a Garda uh, policy or, or uh, God knows, I don't know, but that was the perception that there was Collusion, if that's the word you want to use, that was the word that was used by the chief superintendent. If that's the word that you want to use, uh, what was being suggested was that it was an informant policy uh, and that's how the policy worked. Now, if that's collusion, uh, well, that's one definition of it. Uh, but if that's the case, that's the case. If it's legal, it's legal. If it's not, it's not. I, I, I don't know. So you're saying yeah, that it so would my, my be totally. Understand, my understanding that, that, you know, this perception was in some way suggesting that Gerdy were involved in criminality. That was, that, and that is how. how you know, no, that they were getting I've information. I've seen that that suggestion. That and they were getting information. No, no, no. There's nothing wrong with getting information. Well, Absolutely they were getting nothing. information from people who were selling drugs about the people they were selling the drugs to. There's nothing wrong with getting information, but what? what, what is there something what, wrong what, about what, getting what information I, about who people have sold drugs well, to? From the people my perception was is that the guy they were some some way colluding with individuals and, and allowing them to to uh, sell their drugs, which is a criminal mm. offence, um, under their eye. Uh, to get information about someone else. And that they, never happened. Well, they tell them who they sold the drugs to. I have no information in relation to that. And I, you know, no, but I is, that, that. is that an informant policy or is that collusion? Is it illegal? Look, I mean, if a, a member of Gareth Shikana is aware of somebody involved in criminal behaviour, i.e. selling drugs, mm. regardless of whether that person is giving information in relation to somebody else who's selling drugs, a smaller f- fish down the line... Mm. Uh, that member of Angarda Shikana is obliged okay. by law to take that person before the courts. Right. Well, we accept, obviously, what the Chief Superintendent said to us on uh, the programme uh, the other day uh, uh, and uh, had expected uh, the issue to have stopped there, but uh, because you've raised it on the programme this morning, I, I 
think it was only right that we uh, discussed it with you. Uh, before we finish up, uh, can I ask you about a, a separate issue, a, a, legal, a legal issue that is being blamed for the decision to withdraw an item from Louth County Council's monthly meeting on Monday, which would have seen councillors vote on whether to sell almost 10 acres of land to the Louth County Board for a new stadium. What's your take on that situation? Well, my understanding is that it was Section 183, which would uh, which would allow uh, members of, of Loud County Council to vote on whether that 10 acres of land be sold at a particular price to the GAA. Um, my understanding in relation to the legal matter was that because the letter hadn't gone out um, to the councillors that uh, it had to be taken off the agenda. Now, I know that there's a lot of unrest in relation to this particular piece of land. By, by you know, for, uh, There are councillors who are you know, questioning certain things in relation to the land, i.e. we have 10 acres of land on a service site um, that uh, is being, that councillors are asked to be sold, to, to sell to the, to the county board, should sell to the GA. This is a service site. We're in a situation at this particular point in time um, where we have an unprecedented housing crisis in this country, and that land is available to be zoned for housing. I have absolutely no objection to the GAA uh, um, receiving ground or buying ground from uh, the County Council, but I think that every avenue has to be explored. And the first avenue I want, I don't want to see, first of all, and this is, I'll, make my, I'll make my case right now, I don't want to see the county grounds taken out of Drogheda. Now, that has been a long protracted uh, discussion between the O'Reilly's and the county board. I want to ensure, and I want to be certain, before I vote on something like this, that number one, every avenue has been uh, explored with O'Reilly's uh, and that they have been given fair play by the county board uh, in their negotiations to turn um, the Gaelic grounds into a, into a county grounds. I want to make sure, first of all, that that has been done. There was a subcommittee set up within the GAA to explore uh, obtaining land for a, for a county grounds. And my understanding is that since that subcommittee, they're not elected to the GA uh, County Board. They have been chosen by members of the GA of the County Board to to explore this situation. Um, there is nobody from south of the county um, on that. There is one Midloud and Dundalk on that particular uh, committee. So immediately you have um, half of the county. Um, disenfranchised basically as to what uh, suggestions may be brought, brought forward to the GAA. The, in economic terms, uh, taking the county grounds out of Drogheda um, will have a substantial economic uh, impact on businesses within the town because you know yourself that when we have large games and big, big matches being played in the town, everybody wins. It's also very accessible in terms of uh, the M1 and um, the other thing that has been suggested, Mike, and I'm not going to go into this now, but I mean, I'm going to be calling for the, for the county board to discuss absolutely everything meticulously um, in relation to the 10 acres that we're discussing. Um, there has been rumours that there are third parties that would benefit from the sale of uh, those 10 acres. Um, and again, I can't go into detail about that. It has been suggested it may be only rumour, and I certainly hope it is, because I think the day you know, that of 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 um individuals and developers um um making vast amount of money through the planning processes uh, and through covert uh, by covert means and I know that people have been canvassed uh, 
but I certainly won't stand over that and I won't stand over a situation whereby a very valuable piece of ground of 10 acres uh, has been sold for probably under the going rate. I have no objection whatsoever with the county board and, and Loud County. It's far, uh, it, it's been going on far too long now that we haven't had a county grounds. But I want to ensure that there is absolute transparency in relation to how this ground is coming before us to be sold at a price and whether, um, as I said, the O'Reilly's have been given a fair crack of the whip okay. by the county board before they move the county grounds out of Drogheda. All right, I have to leave it there. But look, many thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning and all of the time that you've given to us for that matter. Richie Culhan is a Fine Gael councillor and uh, a former Garda detective. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. And you've been hearing the Mansion House and Liberty Hall are amongst uh, the buildings uh, that will be lit red today as part of Show Racism, the Red Cards Special Campaign Day, Wear Red Day, and you're encouraged to wear red in order to show racism. The Red Card, uh, the coordinator of this uh, event is Gareth Mullen, who's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us, Gareth. It's uh, the third annual event, is it? That's right, yeah, and it's, it's getting bigger each year, and with the uh, buildings going red, that's a new element to the programme this year. All right, uh, and what's the objective? Is this a, 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 an awareness campaign? It, it was it's both awareness and fundraising. Uh, we're looking for people to support us with uh, to help us produce our new education pack, and that, that uh, pack will hopefully be available to every school in the country. We're in the process of producing it, but uh, there are costs involved, so we're looking to raise some of those costs through this fundraising day. And uh, some groups will be doing doing fundraising and some will be doing the the awareness uh, raising as well, so... Okay, and part of the fundraising uh, for people uh, sitting in their armchairs, if you like, show racism the red card or S or T or C. If you text S or T or C to five zero three double O, you'll donate two euro. Is it? That's right. Yeah. Right, uh, and we'll repeat uh, that for people in a, a moment. Uh, and uh, tell us a, a little bit about how you plan to spend that. You said an information pack. What will be in that? Well, it's uh, we've produced two education packs over the last ten years, and we have other resources up on our website that'll be available for teachers um, in primary and secondary schools um, around Ireland. The idea of show racing our cars, we, we produce education resources to uh, educate young people around the topic of racism and how it impacts, and it allies closely with school anti-bullying policies as well, um, and, and and so. The, the, the new pack uh, includes a video where, where we interviewed some of the Ireland soccer players, some young people from different schools mm. about their views and experiences of, of racism. Uh, same about the Ireland soccer players. Our, the idea of showcasing our card emerged from a campaign initially set up in England, but it's now in, in a number of different European countries. And the idea is harnessing the profile of sports stars to convey a message to young people, I suppose, with the idea that sometimes... Um, Sports stars are the uh, role models that young people look up to. So it's, we, we found it to be very effective in, in promoting a good culture within schools, a good culture within uh, sports clubs mm. as well. We just had a very successful fair fortnight with, with, the, uh, with the FAI where we had 67 clubs and about 118 school uh, workshops in October. So 
And, and is racism not a, a rare thing amongst young people or are there many incidents of racism uh, in schools? Because uh, I think it's probably true to say that whilst uh, we're in a different Ireland than the Ireland that I grew up in, certainly probably the Ireland that you grew up in, uh, but uh, colour, creed and nationalities uh, and uh, the diverse mixture of Irish society is something that a, long, a lot of young people are very used to. In fact, don't seem to notice or it would seem to me they don't seem to notice or is it that they're saying one thing and doing a different thing. Yeah, well, maybe that's the way it can seem to adults. I suppose the um, in Ireland we don't have we don't have Donald Trump, obviously, uh, but he is in our media, uh, and, and we don't have far right parties which are orchestrating division within societies, as there, as there, as is the case in many European countries. But certainly, Ireland is a changed country, and some for some people. You know, that that's that, that that is difficult, and uh, you know, with that there are fears about the types of type of society we have, and but then there's just you know simple racism, um, you know p- people not accepting difference, and and not accepting that people are would be of a different skin color or nationality in the same environment as them. In relation to schools, we were quite shocked that uh, a survey that the Teachers Union of Ireland did last year found that 45% of teachers had witnessed racism in the month previous to their conference. God. So not mm. not just in, in the year, but in yeah. the month previous to their conference. So that, that figure is very high. And also it's very high when you consider that um, with that kind of behaviour, you would expect young people, you know, kids w- would try and keep things away from their teacher. But these are incidences yeah. that teachers have witnessed. It's a bit mad when you think as well that a fifth of us living in this country were born in a different country. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment and just remind people that they can show solidarity by wearing red today or make a donation by texting S-O-R-T-O-R-C to show the racism, the red card. Uh, that's 503 to below is the text number SRT. Or C uh, is what you should write in your text message. And thanks for joining us here this morning, Garrett Mullen, coordinator of Show Races and the Red Card. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Grandier from Drogheda thinks that you've got to hand it to Theresa May. Uh, Grania says that she's clinging on, Michael, and sticking to her commitment to the EU and to Ireland. I may not agree with her politics, but I certainly admire her as a politician. I feel a lesser politician would be well gone by now. Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, The questioning that's going on in the Michael Reid show now is annoying Paddy from Navin, he said when he rang in. Mm. And he says that what you're doing in relation to your questioning on Brexit, he says, is putting ammunition into the bigots' hands. He says, "You're, you're like an infant at school asking questions. The best thing for you to do would be to let the British get on with what they're trying to do instead of saying, what if or if that... We should be standing back and letting them get on with it and help them if they need help because it's in our benefit. Okay, Paddy. That's what Paddy All says. Right, okay, I'll take that as a, a very stern slap in the hand. But um, can I just ask one question? What is it they're trying to do? You'll have to ring it and ask. Uh, well, I think it depends on who you call the British because I think some yeah. of them are trying to do one thing, some of them are trying to do something else and there's probably lots more who are trying to do plenty more other things uh, and therein lies the problem in trying to understand what they're trying to do and hence the questions, I think. 
um, John got in touch and John says that he hadn't been very optimistic about getting this deal through but uh, as the days go by he thinks that it may be possible once the EU states uh, all agree to it. Mm. That's what he's saying. Okay, yeah. Uh, we won't rain on your parade. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're not yeah. as optimistic, Michael. Uh, another listener says, sick listening to Brexit, Michael. Sick of it. I know it's an important issue, but it just seems to be dragging on and on and on. Do you think that the it will be all ended next March? <laughs> this the, listener wants to know that the conversation will be yes. oh god no no nobody <laughs> thinks that uh, because uh, they've uh, then start negotiating uh, the uh, future relationship uh, you're talking about uh, a transition phase uh, which will last up to 2020 maybe 2022 they're talking about extending it out that far you could be talking about this for another four years in actual fact uh, that's if it goes ahead at all but uh, we've a crucial couple of days ahead of us indeed a crucial couple of weeks uh, before that Commons vote which is expected probably mid December and as Mairead McGuinness was saying to us uh, this morning it might even go to a second vote but let's talk about something far more important which is getting a, a bargain because today is Black Friday and we're joined by Doreen Sweeney who's head of corporate and stakeholder communications with the CCPC that's the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. Good morning to you Doreen and thanks for joining us and I suppose to a lot of people getting a bargain is the most important thing in the world but people may rush themselves into mistakes, I take it, today as well. There's reason to be cautious. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the important thing for people to realise is whether um, something is reduced and whether you buy it at a bargain or whether you buy it not, your consumer rights don't change. And that's a really important thing for consumers to be aware of. And 14 is a number you're asking people to be conscious of. We we say 14 is a magic number. So 14 days. So if you place an order and um, your goods arrive, your your dress or your trousers arrive, you have 14 days um, to decide whether you want to keep them or if you would like to return them. So at 14 days, if you decide you would like to return them, you have 14 days to get then additional to get Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The goods back to the shop um, to get a full refund. 
That's from the moment they arrive in your letterbox or the postman knocks on your door or whatever it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the 14 mm-hmm. days to return them is in addition to the first 14 days. Right, okay. Uh, and uh, what uh, about uh, the uh, idea uh, that you have a, a guarantee or an insurance policy or something like that uh, that comes with some of these goods? How do you mean in terms of if it's faulty? or? Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's two separate things, and quite often we find people get confused between us. When you buy um, an item from, from a trader, they are, they're in a contract with you. And under consumer protection law, there's particular protections in place so that you should not buy me or sell me something that's faulty. Um, in addition to that are guarantees and warranties, and they're with the manufacturer, and they're separate. And a lot of people think just because mm. one, there's a guarantee there, I can't go back to the trader. The trader's a duty to you to sell to you that so irrespective of whether there's a guarantee or a warranty you still can come back, go back to the trader if something turns out to be faulty all right and uh, we're uh, just a, a month out from christmas so people will be anxious to do some shopping and especially to do it today while the bargains are available to them so they may be on the internet and uh, ordering this sort of stuff uh, and then go out tomorrow and find uh, that it's uh, available in one of the local shops because i've been hearing ads all morning for the local shops and they're all having special sales on it as well so they might find it cheaper actually in the shops than they bought it for on the internet. Can you change your mind? You can change your mind. There's, there's very big differences between um, buying online and buying in the shop. Um, just like those recognising the fact you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't see the colour, you can't try it on. So if you buy something online, you have those 14 days to return for whatever reason. And you don't, it doesn't have to be that it didn't fit you. It could be purely because you changed your mind. Now, there is a slight cost to you in that, in that if you decide to return for that reason or what you said, you have to pay to return those items. So you'll be down the delivery of the return um, but if you buy in shop, you don't. You're not automatically guaranteed to change of mind. To change your mind, it's down to the store, whatever policy they would like. So yes, you could absolutely um, return it once it's within the 14 days and buy it in in the traditional shop if it is at a cheaper price. Some cynics uh, look on this as a day uh, that uh, sharp practice comes into play, and uh, they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes and claiming that things are bargains when they're not bargains. If you feel that you're being duped, what should you do? Absolutely. Well, what we'd say is it is very hard, and especially there's a lot of hype right now. So um, particularly if you're buying something that's, you know, a high-value item, have a look around at a couple of the shops. See what other people, what other prices. So if someone's advertising something that's 80% off and you're looking at it and it's the same price as, you know, with some of those not discounting, you can kind of have a fairly good idea. Now, if you think you have been misled um, and you've bought something um, as a result, we provide a helpline and our number is 1890. 432432 or through our website and you can give us information about um, what what you bought and we can help you in terms of your rights as well too. Okay and that number available to people from the radio station and thank you indeed for joining us this morning Doreen Sweeney is Head of Corporate and Stakeholder Communications with the CCPC, that's the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. Now let's go back to you and more of your thoughts. You have some more calls there Marie. I have indeed some comments coming in in relation to what's going on regarding the County Grants, a text from a listener who says Councillor Colhan needs to speak to the Loud County Board to get this sorted. We are the laughing stock of the country. John phoned in to say is there no county council land available in Drogheda that the, that the county board could buy, that the GAA grounds has always been in Drogheda and he fears that it should remain in this area. Uh, 
Poetry from having contacted us, not to do with, with Gaelic, but to do with soccer and what's going on in the FAI with Martin O'Neill going. He feels it's a merry ground to talk about Mick McCarthy being appointed. In a few years' time, he wonders, will it be Martin O'Neill again? He feels it's time for change in the FAI from the top down. Mm. Just on um, housing then, and we've some more comments in, in relation to that, um, uh, Frank was in touch to say, is there no chance that the government could impose a rent freeze for a certain period of time uh, that would help people who are struggling to rent? That you can Is it fair that rents are just going up and up all the time because of the shortage of properties? They did, didn't they? Mm. They have, uh, not across the board, not in every part of the country, but in quite a a lot of uh, places uh, they have imposed what they call rent Rent. pressure zones, which is that you can't increase uh, the rent by any more than 4%, I think it's for two years, but that's the limit on it and uh, it's being ignored by all accounts. And it's not everywhere, as you say, Mm, Michael. Yeah, but where it is, uh, the law, it's being ignored Uh, to a large degree. Seamus was also listening into your interview with Damien English on the comment yesterday regarding right sizing and he feels that there are many um, senior citizens that are living in houses that are probably far too big for them now and he thinks it is worth uh, people considering whether they want to stay on in these houses when they are very costly. They're harder to heat especially if there's only one person living there and you have all the maintenance headaches. So Mm. he thinks that there's a lot to think about. There is indeed. As long as we respect people's choice and if they want to continue living in what has been their family home all of their lives, that they have the right to do that. Okay, so we finish on that, Michael. Thanks, Ray. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. And remember that if you would like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Marie and Maggie are taking calls now and our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you Probably know the child protection expert Ian Elliott has been carrying out uh, an audit of uh, Scouting Ireland's historical files and uh, there was genuine surprise and shock for that matter when the Minister for Children, Catherine Sapone, told uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Children that this audit had so far identified 108 cases of abuse and 71 alleged abusers, 14 of whom were multiple abusers, predominantly from the 1960s through to the 1980s. Since Wednesday, more people have come forward. So there's reports today that as many as 15 people have come forward to say that they also suffered abuse and other reports suggesting that the number is actually higher, that 20 people have come forward suggesting that they had been abused. We're joined now by Fiona Jennings, who's the policy coordinator with the ISPCC. Good morning to you, Fiona, and thanks for joining us and given that Ian Elliott has been looking at these files that uh, Scouting Ireland had written up themselves uh, it's no surprise I suppose that more people have come forward and indeed I imagine it's expected that these numbers will grow and quite substantially so because he's to look at the incidents and the records from the 1990s onwards. Good morning Michael. Yes, um, I suppose no more than no more than just what you're saying there. That it's it's a story that's developing, and we're just we're um, I suppose we're following it in the media too. Um, and while I suppose before the minister spoke at the Joint Directors Committee on 
Wednesday, you know, nobody had a prior knowledge as to what the level might be. And yes, you know, everybody is surprised and we're surprised too. But I suppose, unfortunately, Ireland's history, where some people in authority are concerned and they're responsible for the, the welfare and care of children, um, violations of trust have taken place, place in the past as well. But I suppose nobody wants to preempt the outcome of any investigation either. But, you know, from what we've been hearing, more and more people are coming forward and, and, and sharing their experiences of, 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 um, of what happened. Uh, we're not unique, obviously. Uh, I mean, we've heard uh, institutional abuse, clerical abuse uh, from all over the world, uh, Pennsylvania, most recently Australia, for that matter. Uh, but uh, is there a particular problem or has there been a particular problem in this country, do you think? Oh, yeah, I think history will show that, that we have had our own um, our own I suppose, well-documented cases of, of this type of abuse as well, and which is unfortunate and you know, many reports have been created on the back of the various cases and, mm-hmm. you know, lessons we hope that were learnt as well. Um, in relation to the people coming forward, I think it's really important, you know, some maybe even tuned into your show this morning as well, that it takes huge courage to come forward because some of these, well, they have, some have been historic, some are more recent as well, and I think we need to be conscious of that. But just to recognise the courage that it does take to come forward and to share what happened to them because abuse can have a profound impact and um, I suppose we would encourage anybody that does have something to share that that they do find the courage to do that. Mm, and many of the people that we're talking about will be in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and possibly older. Many of uh, the abusers, we're told, are deceased and I take it uh, there's some people who had been abused who have passed on since as well because, as you say, this is quite historical. Yes, it is. Uh, I believe that's, again, like we're just following what's in the media mm. as well at the moment. Um, but I suppose it is to acknowledge as well that, you know, Scouting Ireland, you know, do seem to be addressing the allegations. And I know their chairperson addressed the, the Arrakis Committee as well, and, and that's to be welcomed. Um, and I suppose it's, it's probably timely as well that any organisation who is responsible for the care of children, mm. that they now take the opportunity to have a look at the policies and pre- procedures they have in place to make sure they're in line with, you know, our current legislation and that they are robust and they're confident that, that, that they do what they're supposed to do and that's ultimately protect children. Do you think that there's uh, people listening to us uh, this morning, uh, or generally speaking, uh, who maybe in their 60s, let's say, who were abused as a, a young child when they were in the Scouts themselves, who thought that that was just an unfortunate thing, if you like, that happened to them, that they were the only ones, uh, are realising now that this was probably endemic in that uh, organisation and don't know where to turn. I know, uh, that's, and again, that's something that y- y- we would have read in the past as well, the experiences of victims that, you know, they felt that they were they were isolated, that it was just something that happened to them and that, you know, the various feelings that can come with that. Um, and I suppose as well that not being able to recognise what was happening to them, you know, was not right, that they were allowed to tell somebody about it. But unfortunately, those stories sometimes and their experiences may not have been received well. And that's why anytime we're ever talking to anybody about you know, safeguarding children, that it's incredibly important that, number one, children 
are believed and number two that when children do come forward or in this case even adult survivors when they come forward it's incredibly important that they see that you know something is done about what they've said mm. and that's 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 really important and Fiona, for somebody uh, who may be in that situation or a situation similar to that, uh, I, I imagine that to some degree the wounds had healed or uh, partly healed or almost healed up to uh, a few days ago. And uh, there's a chance now that it's opening up old wounds as such for them. Yeah, I mean, I think that is probably a high, a high possibility. And, you know, some people may have, you know, have had their own coping mechanisms for having dealt with their experiences in the past. And now with this coming light again, it perhaps has opened up something that they perhaps, you know, learned how to manage for quite some time. There is, I believe, Scouting Ireland have um, a helpline that they've set up and also one in four, the organisation who supports adult survivors of of abuse, um, there's support there as well. But um, I mean, we would encourage anybody, you know, to to, to call those helplines. You can call them anonymously as well, I'm sure, and just to to look for support. And is there any benefit in people coming forward, let's say to Ian Elliott, if not for themselves, but for other people? I mean, I think there's always a benefit in when something has gone wrong and you feel that it's not right and you're not you feel that there's perhaps something that you want to do about it even if it's just you may think that you know the information that you have is a very you know you may feel it's insignificant whereas it could be significant to put pieces of a puzzle together um, but again for anybody that who has had that experience and they feel that you know something that happened however mm. many years ago that it was wrong, then we would certainly encourage them to talk about that. Right, uh, but if uh, they feel that they've dealt with it themselves, uh, do you think that there would be a benefit in them coming forward for other people, for all of us, to understand the extent of what happened? I think with this particular type of abuse, it's incredibly sensitive, and as I said, it can have a profound impact, and it really is up to each individual themselves to, to... to, I suppose, to make up their own minds and to weigh it up. Sometimes, you know, opening up old wounds can be incredibly difficult as well. Mm. And nobody wants to re-traumatise anybody um, in relation to the experiences that they've had. So it is, I suppose, it's, it's in the media. We're, we're, we're all hearing it on our radio and our, and, our, and our televisions. And, you know, so people are talking about it and it's, mm. it's up to individuals themselves as well to do what they, what they feel they're able to do. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's impossible to uh, ignore it. Uh, impossible, I imagine, as well, for people who've been subjected to abusive uh, behaviour, whether that was within Scouting Ireland or elsewhere, because quite often you hear from people who can identify with the stories uh, that they're hearing, uh, because whilst everybody's abuse is individual, if you like, uh, there's a similar trait to it uh, to a large extent Uh, so uh, a little bit like when uh, there was all the media coverage uh, of abuse uh, relating to the papal visit people came forward for all sorts of reasons yes but and i suppose it is just to pick up my last point as well just to, to be absolutely clear that you know if somebody does have you know information where you know a person you know a perpetrator is still you know having access to children and that's incredibly concerning and therefore then you know we would certainly encourage them 
to, to come forward in that particular mm. situation. Um, but I suppose, you know, children's voices haven't always been heard um, and we know that. And prevention is very, very important. So having robust, you know, volunteer or employee recruitment procedures in place um, that, you know, volunteers or employees are, you know, subjected to guards of vetting, subject to, you know, our supervision and monitoring periods as well. You know, I suppose sometimes it's not nice to say it, but that, you know, there has been evidence where sometimes people can, you know, be attracted to organisations, you know, where there is... um, Easy access to children, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the church, it's a position of trust uh, where you interact with children and the scouts, uh, I I suppose, would have uh, been obvious to those people. When when, when did uh, guard vetting become a requirement for volunteers for Scouting Ireland? Yeah, so volu- the, the volunteering, um, the Garda Vetting Bureau Bill came into um, effect, I think it was in 2012. I could be corrected on mm, that. Mm. So basically now any organisation who has um, I suppose a certain number of volunteers mm. and employees who are responsible for working directly with children, then they must be subjected to um, Garda Vetting. In, in terms of this story, though, that's uh, all the more worrying, isn't it, Fiona? Because uh, we're talking about a, a, another 30 years of records that Ian Elliott has to look at, uh, and uh, there's over 20 years I- involved in those records uh, that vetting wasn't in place. Yeah, I mean, the uh, recruitment procedures have certainly changed hugely, mm. you know, in that like we are talking about, you know, over decades mm-hmm. and recruitment procedures and, you know, our policies and procedures and indeed our legislation has changed hugely in those time periods as well. And um, and again, I suppose nobody wants to preempt the outcome of the investigation and we don't know what, you know, policies mm-hmm. and procedures were in place by Scouting Ireland. But um, we do hope, like other reports that came out, you know, of, of situations like this in the past, we really do hope that mm-hmm lessons can be learned. Yeah, and of course it was two different organisations up to 2004, I think, the Catholic Scouts and uh, the President uh, branch of it uh, uh, on the other hand. Uh, So we're talking about different organisations that could have had uh, different uh, systems in place and regulations in place for uh, overseeing uh, children like that. Uh, But uh, what we're talking about here is records uh, that these organisations kept themselves what do you know about that in terms, or have you any thoughts on that in terms of what the actual number may be? I mean, if they recorded 108 incidents of abuse in the 60s through to the 80s, uh, how many may have there? How many may there have been in reality? Yeah, and I think that's something that's, that's probably quite difficult to, to, mm. to put like a, a figure on. Um, again, you know, Ian Elias is looking at the records that are available to him, and we can hear from the reports in the media that, you know, more victims are coming forward as well. And I suppose for those victims coming forward, it's incredibly important that there are resources available to support them. Um, Recently, Minister Sabone announced that a one-house co-location model of support for children and young people who experience sexual abuse will be implemented in Ireland. The pilot will actually be based um, in Galway in the coming months. So that's an incredible move forward. So children who have experienced um, sexual abuse will have access, timely access to supports and resources. For adult survivors of sexual abuse who are coming forward now who had no support or very little support, 
it's incredibly important that they now have access to support and that they're able to, I suppose they're able to process, process this as well. Right, uh, and what we're talking about is uh, yesterday's children, uh, to a large degree, who are adults now. What about tomorrow's people? Are they safe? Are the children that uh, live in this country today safe? Because obviously that's your primary concern in the ISPCC. Yeah, and I mean, while we would, you know, we work face-to-face with children through our child and family support services, and we hear from children on our child line service. Our child line service is a universal service, so children can call for any particular reasons. But yes, we can get a small number of calls where children can call us and abuse is taking place. And when we get that information and children identify themselves, then we absolutely pass that on to either the Child and Family Agency, TUSA, or if it's out of ours, to the Gardaí. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, we should mention to people that if they do want to contact one and four, uh, who you mentioned there a while ago, uh, the number is Dublin. That's 01-6624-070. That's 6624-070. Uh, that's uh, the telephone number for the one and four organisation. But Fiona, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Fiona Jennings is policy coordinator with the ISPCC. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time on a Friday, for our review of the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath Oireachtas Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Wednesday. Fianna Fáil TD for Meath West, Shane Castles, told the House that plans to abolish certain tax relief allowances will have a costly impact on certain employees at Tara Mines in Navan. He sought clarity on the issue from Antishok, Leo Varadkar. One major sector within the 130 sectors being reviewed is that of Tara Mines in my hometown in Navan, where 700 miners are set to lose the allowance. The allowance for the miners' Taoiseach is designed for specialised creams and treatment. It's a genuine one for workers in the, one of the most dangerous and stifling underground conditions. It's hardly an archaic practice, as has been the line I've heard used over the past 24 hours. Is the communication detailing the information, breaking down the qualifying expenses still going to be issued to workers this year, or is that too going to be deferred as that falls into the bag news category also? Deputy, this is um, a review that's being carried out by the Revenue Commissioners. It hasn't gone to government, uh, nor has any government decision been made on it. Um, And I'm not happy about how this has transpired over the last couple of days, uh, because it has uh, caused enormous unnecessary concern to people that they may be losing uh, their flat rate expenses. No changes will be implemented before uh, the 1st of January 2020, if if at all. Uh, And I'll make sure that any changes are politically proofed. The Brexit withdrawal deal was discussed in the Dáil on Wednesday night. European Affairs Minister and Fine Gael TD for Meath East, Helen McEntee, told the House that unionists have nothing to fear about the future of the North as the principle of consent on a united Ireland as set out in the 1998 peace agreement is not compromised. The backstop provisions provide an important insurance policy that we will not see a return to a hard border on this island in any circumstance. This translates the UK's political commitments to avoid the hard border on the island of Ireland and translates it into a legal guarantee, something that we have seeking or have sought to do for the past year. Of course, we hope that the backstop will never be used. We're committed to working closely with the UK and with our EU partners to agree, as I've said, a deep and comprehensive future relationship, one that will mean that the backstop provision will never be needed. 
rights, safeguards and equality of opportunity as set out in the Good Friday Agreement as well as EU citizenship rights for people in Northern Ireland are also protected under the agreement. And to reiterate again what the Taoiseach and Thánaiste mentioned earlier in that nothing in the agreement will prejudice the constitutional status of Northern Ireland and the principle of consent as set out in the Good Friday Agreement. During the same debate, Fianna Fáil TD Declan Branagh called for the publication of a document that highlights North-South areas of cooperation at risk once Brexit takes effect. This week, the EU Ombudsman called the European Commission to publish a key document spelling out all the areas of North-South cooperation under the Good Friday Agreement that are a risk in Brexit. This document came about following the mapping exercise which was carried out jointly by the UK and EU in 2017 to identify all of the areas which were at risk and discovered that there were over 150 areas contained in the Good Friday Agreement which were underpinned by EU law. Minister, when will we have sight of this most important document? I believe that it covers a wide range and array of cross-border topics such as trade, animal health, tourism and environment, cross-border fraud prevention and mutual recognition of professional qualifications, to name but a few. These are some of the areas that I wish to mention today as a resident of North County Loud. The practical changes that a no-Brexit deal would present are enormous. Many of my neighbours have to travel across the border daily some students, some farmers, some transporting produce and other goods. Indeed, some healthcare workers. I could go on and on. The lack of investment and resources in the treatment of mental health was raised in the Shannon on Thursday. Finnegale Senator Ray Butler told the House that the state doesn't appear to care. Last Christmas, in my constituency in Mead West, we had family members at the sides of river banks in the Boyne and the Blackwater waiting to hear of news of family members that had disappeared. The other night, I lost a friend with mental health issues, and it was so sad to see Colin suffer over the last few months. And really, the services done absolutely nothing. I know that we have put 30 to 40 million into mental health services in the last two years in two budgets. But I think it's gone past the day of prescribing medicines and drugs and letting people just back out in the streets and saying, there you go, you're all right now, off you go. We need proper facilities in this country. We need a plan. The finance bill is currently working its way through the Oireachtas and puts into law the measures announced in the budget. Speaking in the Dáil on Thursday, Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick told the House that doubling the betting tax from 1% to 2% will see betting shops close and hundreds of people out of work. The entire profit for the, for the retail betting sector is in the region of £35 million per year. The doubling of the tax from 1% to 2% constitutes a 100% increase. The 100% increase will wipe all the profits out. Already in the last 10 years, 515 closures. And I said, if that 2% had remained, there would have been an awful lot more than closures. At present, there were about 850 shops all around the country. And the bookmakers have only started to make a slight increase in their business again. If this increase goes ahead, it is estimated that between 350 to 400 more closures, that that would be an indirect job losses of about 2,500. This would be a cost of this jagger of around 35 million plus 1 million in commercial rates. If these shops close, it's going to have serious effect in families. It's going to have serious effect in subcontractors, window cleaners, local news agents, plumbers, electricians, shop fitters, computer services, printers, 
lots, lots more. And this is, a, this is another indirect of another 900 jobs. So roughly a minute, so you're going to be talking about the job loss of about 3,400. The Senate debated a bill during the week aimed at allowing children who have three years residency here the legal right to Irish citizenship. Labour Senator Jed Nash told the House on Wednesday that the outcome of the 2004 referendum, which forbids automatic Irish citizenship to children born here, was predicated on mistruths, which in turn misled the electorate. I remember people saying uh, and holding these kind of views that didn't hold water at all. Oh, migrants are coming to this country because they were getting free cars. They were getting their cars insured. As Senator O'Reilly was saying, young women were getting their hair braided for free. Yeah. Nonsense that didn't stand up to the uh, slightest of scrutiny. But people felt they had a licence to expound these kind of views. Views that I hadn't heard before and that were stoked up because of this uh, referendum that I think appealed to the lowest base instincts of I thought a minority of people in this country, but we know that a majority of people supported that particular referendum. And if I had the opportunity, I would propose that that referendum result should be overturned. Gerry Adams told the House that Sinn Féin would support the deal, even though it has its flaws. Last December's joint report stated that there would be no diminution of rights, and I quote, that Irish citizens will continue to enjoy rights as EU citizens, including where they reside in Northern Ireland. That's now been deleted. We don't have that. And that is a significant backward step. Yes, the draft agreement does contain a clause on rights, but it's not legally binding. The removal of the X-ray room for the planned extension at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda was raised for the third time in the Dáil in recent weeks by Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster. She questioned Minister of State Jim Daly on the matter. Just a few weeks ago the HSE took a decision to remove the X-ray room out of the plans, as I have said, for the extension of the emergency department at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. Now these plans have been in place for 10 years. They were costed and included in the tender. Um, The staff had been patiently waiting for almost a decade. Now, the medical people, the staff, the clinicians, the nurses, the radiographers, all of those people that work at the coalface on the front line have been crying out for years for a second, the need for a second x-ray room. And this was accepted. And that's why it was included in the plans. There is one and only one x-ray room in Our Lady of Lords Hospital and they're at full capacity. In fact, they're working beyond capacity. The equipment is 10 years old. It's obsolete, in fact. The extension, as I said, was planned. There's There's simply no excuse for it. There's no justification for it. So I'm looking to have it reversed. With regards to the provision of a second X-ray room as part of this project, my department have been informed by HSE Estates that this development had been discussed with service user groups. However, the second X-ray could not be delivered with any capital allocation for this project and as such has not been included in the project brief. An additional CT scanner is expected to be brought online in early 2019, which will see Our Lady of Lourdes equipped with the following imaging facilities. Two CT scanners, one MRI scanner, two ultrasound rooms, one plain film. And that response by Minister Jim Daly to a question from Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster concludes our Loud Me, the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the House of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken, and Ken Murray will have another Loud Me, the Oireachtas report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the House of the Oireachtas. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
The Church of Scientology's plans uh, to set up a drug rehabilitation centre in Beliver was met with nothing but resistance from the local community. And the local community is buoyant uh, today because it has been decided by Umbor Planola that it is in breach of planning regulations. We're joined by Noel French, who's a Fine Gael councillor on Meath County Council, indeed uh, local, indeed, uh, I think, a, a very happy uh, citizen this morning. Good morning to you, Noel. Good morning. I'm absolutely delighted. Fantastic. Uh, It's uh, a victory for common sense. Uh, But uh, it's been ruled uh, in contravention of planning rules, uh, but uh, there is still an option for the Church of Scientology or Narconon, if you prefer, uh, to apply for retention on this. Well, what uh, uh, the the main f- factor here is that on board Planola have rules that they have to apply for planning permission. It is a development, so they have to apply for the change of use from the nursing home to uh, the drug rehabilitation centre, and uh, they will have to apply to Meath County Council uh, for that. And mm. uh, I think there will be maybe a few objections from Pliver, maybe a few hundred. But uh, um, the other option, I suppose, for, for them is that uh, they could uh, take it to, to the High Court. Narconon have not done anything wrong with regard to uh, to planning, uh, and uh, they just applied the laws as did Mead County Council. But Mead County Council applied the, wrong, the laws wrongly, didn't it? Um, uh, you can argue either side of that. Okay. Uh, Meath County Council would say that they applied it rightly, and I have seen the clause in the Act which equates a drug rehabilitation centre to a nursing home. Uh, that, to me, does not make sense. Mm. And certainly a drug rehabilitation uh, centre uh, of this size in a small village uh, is certainly much uh, would certainly have a much different impact than a nursing home. Okay. And that's, in so- its essence, what uh, the on board said, mm. they would be a different uh, amount of movement, different type of people, and it would have a different impact on the Okay, so, so what you're saying is Narconon applied for planning permission to the council. Meath County Council said nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. Umbor Planola holds a, a different view, and that's why it may go to the High Court. There's the room for argument because you have two different views. What Umbor Planola said in its judgment was that the proposed use as a residential drug rehabilitation facility would be a factual change of use from use as a nursing home and such change of use would raise material planning considerations including different patterns of traffic and pedestrian activity, stroke movement, a different service to a different user group including a population with a broader age profile and who are drug dependent and with limited interaction with the local community and is therefore a material change of use and its development. That would seem pretty much in line with the view of the community. Yes, absolutely. Those uh, are the vast majority of the um, queries that we put in with regard to to the planning. Um, this uh, is located, it's, 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 I think it's a 50-bed drug rehabilitation centre going into a, a village with a population of uh, uh, under 2,000. Uh, it would have a huge impact. It is located uh, opposite our new playground. We've got a new playground in Beliver. It's a fantastic playground. Come and visit. Uh, um, and uh, uh, we have uh, it's across the road. I might be a bit big, by the way. <laughs> Sorry? I said I might be a bit big. 
the, the playground. No, I might be a bit big for the playground. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, well, it's under 12, but okay. just don't get caught. All right, that'll do. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. I've already yes. had that argument locally. I'm sure. Um, so, uh, besides the, the na- opposite of the National School, beside the Montessori School, beside mm. the Community Centre, and at the same time, we have 23 uh, people, uh, natives of Beliver, in nursing homes outside outside the parish. So, mm. uh, uh, you would like this building. Better. You would like this building to have uh, been turned into a, a nursing home, which was yes. the original application because that was of the, the original people who planning were application. And the town. They got halfway and uh, mm. they they sorted uh, then, uh, and Narconon applied under a section five, which does not go into public realm. Unfortunately, but now they do. Um, Section fives are a way of um, making small changes, mm. generally yeah. in uh, in in buildings where you don't have to go through the full uh, planning process. Say, if you wanted to uh, uh, change a wall in, in, in internally, mm. or uh, um, you know, do something small, change a window or something like that, they generally don't go through the planning process. But this was a huge one to go through on our Section 5. Originally, it was the National School, wasn't it? It's the old National School, uh, and they've been working on it since. uh, They're nearly uh, finished. Yeah, they're they're, they're almost ready to open the doors to people who would have availed of the services. So I take it they've spent quite a lot of money on this, uh, and as a result, that this story isn't quite over. Oh, the story is not over by any means. Uh, Narconon are quite entitled to apply for planning permission. Narconon are quite entitled to take it to, to the, the, the High Court. Uh, Narconon have spent a considerable amount of money uh, on the building. I saw a figure yesterday of something like 5.6 uh, uh, million. Narconon want to do this. Um, that's uh, that's their uh, mm. opinion. Uh, we hold a slightly different opinion in Beliver. And if they're prevented from using the building as a drug rehabilitation centre, what will become of it? That is a difficult one, uh, Michael. Uh, I know, uh, having uh, done a bit of research into this, I know they they ran into trouble in one or two other countries with regard to to planning. And uh, I know in one particular case, they just left the building set. Oh my God! Right, okay, uh, but that's not what you want in Beliver. Uh, Absolutely not. The, wor- the work that the work that uh, has gone into this and the money that's gone into this to bring it up to spec doesn't mean that it would necessarily uh, be a, a, a suitable location for a nursing home. The work that's been done on it, yes, it, it's the, the the building itself has been constructed as a nursing home. Uh, they, they used the existing planning permission for a nursing home to build a building. All Narconon were doing was changing the use. Okay, because uh, those who would have uh, gone into rehabilitation would have been staying over and that sort of thing as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. All so, right. So it's uh, wait and see at this stage. Wait and see, but listen, uh, yesterday was mm. a tremendous victory for people power, for, for, for common sense. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, laws need to be interpreted uh, slightly, slightly differently okay. than uh, straight, down, straight down the line. Uh, a drug, one type of drug rehabilitation centre is not the same as another type of drug rehabilitation okay, centre. Okay, and a big victory for people locally. And I think uh, everybody will applaud the efforts 
of the community and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Finnegale Councillor Noel French brings our programme to its conclusion today indeed for this week. Uh, hope you have a, a lovely weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.